Good morning, Indie Media listeners. This is Alex Wisson with a report and analysis of the post-federal election aftermath. Now, a great deal to say about the results, of course. There are multiple uh, facets of this election worth exploring. But I want to start with what I consider to be the most significant feature, which is the historically high result for the non-major parties, both for minor parties and independents. Historically high number, as I say, it's currently tracking at just under a third of the overall lower house vote at 31.5%, and that is in contrast to the non-major party vote in 2019, which was just under a quarter at 24.7%. And in the prior election, 2016, 23.5%. So if one tracks those numbers over the course of the last several elections, one can see a trend in terms of a breakaway of a significant cohort of the electorate away from the major parties. And it seems as though this trend is very much here to stay. It's one I've been anticipating and predicting Uh, over the course of the last few election cycles and there has been not simply a quantitative shift in that non-major party vote but what what I would argue is now a qualitative shift in the non-major party vote. A breakaway as I say from both the coalition and the Labor Party. This is the chickens coming home to roost for both uh, major parties, the servants of the Australian ruling class, the, the dutiful uh, administrators of the economy on behalf of the rich and powerful uh, who have uh, caused devastating damage to the lives of working class people, uh, certainly over the course of the last four decades in particular. There is, of course, the particular context in this election of the cost of living crisis with uh, in inflation Uh, at very high figures, as high as we've seen them in several uh, decades. Neither party going to the electorate with anything like a mandate, indeed anything like uh, even a a skeletal uh, set of uh, policies to address that that cost of of living crisis. So so deserved punishment for for both uh, the major parties and, uh, as I say, qualitative shift in a trend that has been progressing uh, for a number of election cycles now. And if I could digress for a moment, one of the, uh, I suppose, interesting features of uh, this this non-major party uh, vote dynamic is it is, of course, very common indeed, absolutely commonplace in, the, in most polities in most polities throughout the Western world. I don't know that it's really appreciated or understood in Australia how, quite how unusual our electoral system is here in terms of, of the way governments are formed in the lower house of the federal parliament. We are, of course, in the post-war period, very much used to one major party, or in the case of the Liberals, in coalition with the National Party uh, for, forming, forming government. But if one looks at uh, polities uh, throughout Europe, uh, whether it's uh, Denmark or Germany or Italy uh, or Greece, uh, 
it is actually the norm for coalitions of three, four, sometimes five or six parties to be cobbled together, often in very unstable ways, uh, in order to form a majority on, on the floor of, of the House of, of Parliament and, and in order to uh, secure uh, the passing of, of legislation through the Parliament and to form uh, an executive uh, that, that, can, that, 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 can govern, that can govern a nation. So I think this trend is here to stay, uh, so get used to it, Australia. Uh, the era of not the year of major party domination, because obviously the Labor Party is, is, is set to form government, and we'll get into the details of that a little bit later, uh, but that era of one of the two major parties um, governing in their own right uh, could, could now be over, which I think we can say in broad terms is an exciting development, uh, although there are caveats to that excitement uh, in terms of the relatively significant size of the far-right populist vote uh, in the form of the United Australia Party and Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party in particular. Now, to focus for a moment on the vote for the Labor Party, the first thing to say, and, 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 and really to my mind, uh, the only thing to say uh, is that their primary vote was risable. It was an absolutely risable and, and pathetic primary vote uh, for the Labor Party. It's uh, one of the lowest of the post-war period and may uh, in the final analysis be the, the lowest of the post-war period, though of course there are still many votes to count. Uh, as I uh, record uh, this analysis, the vote count is sitting at 71.1%. At, at, uh, but just to give you uh, the context or an understanding of, of of why I say the Labor Party's primary vote was so risable. In 2016, uh, Labor share of the primary vote was 34.7%. It then dropped 1.4% to exactly a third, 33.3% in 2019. Now bear in mind, the Labor Party lost both of those elections. It lost both of those elections. And yet, in this federal election in 2022, the Labor Party, on 71.1% of the vote, is sitting at a paltry 32.8%. So that is half a percentage point lower than in 2019 when they lost the election. It's worth sitting with that information and really absorbing it and processing it and understanding it. So. Uh, anyone who tells you in the coming days, and I should uh, add as a, a note of qualification to, to what I've just said, I don't, in, in, in providing this analysis, wish for one moment to, uh, to spoil people's uh, vibe, as, 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 some young people, uh, as, some, as some young people like to say. I, I fully understand uh, and can sympathise with people who are celebrating uh, this morning and who indeed are related uh, in the wake of Saturday's result, because clearly it is a, a positive development to get rid of, of Scott Morrison. But what I would say is that that really is what we ought to be celebrating, is the departure of Scott Morrison from government. The fact that he is now uh, unemployed is obviously a, a good thing. Now, whether or not we then embrace 
the Labor Party's so-called victory is is another question, and I call it a so-called victory because it's not at all uh, a clear victory. The Labor Party did not go to the electorate with a mandate of any kind. It was a very murky, uh, very uh, limited and vague uh, set of policies to the extent that there really were a coherent set of policies that were taken to the electorate. Uh, and that's one of the reasons, one of manifold reasons why uh, the Labor Party's share of the primary vote is so so risable. So not at all uh, coming into this parliament with, uh, with a strong uh, support base, a strong mandate or any real sense of momentum. And I think that's one of the uh, features of this this incoming election cycle that that's going to be interesting in terms of the inherent uh, instability really uh, of 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 the, the Labor Party's formation uh, of government in, in in the lower house in the in the House of Representatives and just briefly mentioning the House of Representatives I should say uh, that I have no intention in this analysis of going into into the Senate results because that's a whole other picture. Uh, as listeners will appreciate, it's it's always much more complicated to analyse the Senate vote, and it's also uh, it takes typically considerably more time to uh, to really dissect uh, and and pull apart uh, the the composition uh, of the Senate and the uh, the particularities of 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 the upper of the upper house. Now, looking at briefly the national two-party preferred. Uh, vote there is a uniform national swing of 3.6 percent to Labor, and as uh, Western Australian listeners uh, would of course appreciate that uh, overall uniform uniform national swing is distorted somewhat by the massive massive 10.7 percent swing on the two-party preferred vote in Western Australia. And uh, really, I don't need to go into the details of why uh, it was such a large swing against the coalition uh, in Western Australia. Obviously, it is indeed uh, the Mark McGowan factor. It is indeed uh, the COVID-19 factor. And yes, it is also the anti-Clive Palmer factor. Uh, something worth uh, mentioning specifically uh, in terms of this point I'm making uh, about the risable performance of the Labor Party, uh, and a lot of people have drawn uh, attention to uh, this result because it was so striking and, and really at odds uh, with any claim that uh, the Labor Party is somehow uh, you know, marching to victory here, uh, are puffed up uh, with their shoulders back and their heads held high. And I am indeed, of course, referring to the unceremonious defeat uh, of former frontbencher uh, Christina and former uh, Premier of New South Wales, Christina uh, Keneally, who was parachuted into the seat of Fowler and absolutely annihilated, absolutely annihilated by the independent Di Lee. And it's worth going back and having a look at Christina Keneally's concession speech, because I think it it will tell you something about the the delusions and and denial of key figures, key senior figures in the Labor Party in terms of their not understanding the nature of what took place on Saturday. Because one can barely even describe it as a concession speech. There was a, a kind of an arrogant defiance. Um, uh, and, and at least to my mind, when I viewed that speech, uh, a, a certain kind of delusional quality to the way uh, Christi Kene Christina Keneally uh, was speaking. Uh, there was no sense in which she was uh, really accepting defeat at all, let alone accepting defeat 
uh, let alone accepting defeat in, in a gracious way. Focusing for a moment on the Queensland results, as listeners would know, uh, Queensland as well as Western Australia was one of the key battlegrounds for both of the major parties and uh, both the Liberal Party and the Labor Party launched their election campaigns in Brisbane. Uh, both Anthony Albanese and Scott Morrison were crisscrossing uh, the, the northern state uh, on multiple occasions throughout the campaign. And given the enormous focus and effort put into uh, Queensland by the Labor Party, their result there too uh, has, not been, uh, has not been at all impressive. Now they did improve on their uh, record in Queensland in 2019. Uh, in 2019, they recorded 26.4% of the primary vote. And in 2022, uh, after the commitment of an enormous amount of resources and campaigning effort in the state of Queensland, they've only seen a very modest improvement uh, of 1.4% on the current count uh, at, uh, and sitting at 27.8% uh, of the primary vote for the Labor Party in Queensland. Turning now to the performance of the Greens Party, uh, they have done very well. Uh, and I say that without, uh, without qualification, without uh, caveats. There is, there's no question that the Greens Party have performed very well in this election. As a matter of fact, it's a historically high vote in terms of the lower house. It's their highest proportion of the national vote ever. That's, that's worth repeating. The Greens have on 71.1% of the count, so the final figure will obviously change, but on 71.1% of the count, the Greens Party have performed, have, 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 put, have put in their best performance ever, sitting currently at 11.9% of the share of the national vote. And just to uh, briefly give you an understanding of the historical uh, context of that uh, figure, in 2019, the Greens recorded 10.4% of the lower house vote. In 2016, 10.2%. And in 2013, uh, where they uh, received a backlash against their disastrous, uh, their disastrous performance in when they were in government in coalition uh, with uh, with Julie Gillard and Kevin Rudd, they only uh, received 8.6% of the vote. So historically uh, high figure and a, a really, some would say, a remarkable performance. I wouldn't use that word myself, but a, certainly an impressive. Uh, performance by the Greens. Uh, the federal leader of the Greens, Adam Bant, uh, of course, won comprehensively yet again in the seat of Melbourne. As a matter of fact, he won uh, on the primary vote alone with 50.9%, uh, uh, an extraordinary 70% uh, on the two-party preferred uh, vote. Uh, the Greens have also won the seat of Ryan in Queensland and are currently leading on the two-party preferred count in both Brisbane and Griffith, which means remarkably, and this is remarkable, uh, the Greens may, may uh, end up with three members of the F Federal House of Representatives from Queensland, Queensland, uh, a state where historically uh, the Greens have not done at all well. So it is, it is amazing in that sense in terms of how the final uh, numbers may, 
shape up uh, for the Greens with, with four members in the lower house. And I did say I wasn't going to uh, explore the, the detail of the Senate results, but I will say briefly that the Greens are currently projected to gain three seats in the upper house, uh, which would give them uh, a 12, uh, a 12 of the 76 senators uh, overall. Uh, and uh, just just to to wrap up this section on the Greens vote, I'll I'll, I'll finish with uh, a quote uh, from ABC journalist uh, Matt Wordsworth, uh, Matt Wordsworth, uh, who put it I think very well when he wrote, and I quote. That such a traditionally conservative state, which has never sent one Green to the lower house, could in one swoop send three, is a remarkable step change. This, however, was no explosion of support. Rather, it's been a slowly creeping tide that's risen from the inside of the city out. First with the election of Jonathan Seary to the inner city ward of the Gabba to Brisbane City Council in 2016. Michael Berkman to State Parliament in 2017 and Amy McMahon's crowning victory of defeating then-Deputy Premier, Premier Jackie Trad in the 2020 state election, end quote. Moving now on to what has probably received the most focus of all in this election, and that, that of course, is the performance of the so-called Teal Independence, otherwise referred to as the Climate 200. Uh, the Liberal MPs Tim Wilson, Trent Zimmerman, Jason Falinski and Dave Sharma are all projected to lose uh, to these, these so-called uh, independents and by any measure it's a stunning result uh, for the, the Teal group of candidates, a stunning result, there's no doubt about it. And of course um, it, doesn't, uh, it didn't hurt uh, that there was a huge injection of funds for this so-called Climate 200 uh, group of candidates sponsored by uh, Trust Fund Baby and uh, son of a billionaire, Simon Holmes Accord, uh, who put in a lot of his own uh, money. Uh, he claims, and I perhaps shouldn't say he claims, because presumably this is, uh, is recorded uh, on the election donation uh, register, uh, that $12 million has been raised for the Climate 200 candidates uh, from 11,000 donations. Uh, but as you can imagine, that Simon Holmes Court has, has uh, very much wanted to draw attention to those uh, so-called mum and dad uh, and mum and dad donations uh, in order uh, to divert attention away from the fact that uh, that indeed, as I say, he is a, he is a billionaire uh, who who is the chief who is the chief sponsor of of this group of candidates, and that that brings me on my, my next point, which is an obvious uh, question, really, which is how independent are these candidates? How independent are these candidates, given that uh, they have a patron and chief sponsor uh, in the form of uh, uh, this billionaire? Uh, I, I should actually backtrack. I, I'd need to check, actually, if he is a billionaire. Certainly his father, Peter Holmes, of court, uh, is a billionaire, uh, and, and I'd have to look at what his overall net worth is. But I, I do believe that Simon Holmes, of court, is a billionaire, and he's been uh, the chief sponsor of these candidates. Now, I have to say, nobody knows what their real agenda is, first of all, uh, and nobody knows at this stage whether or not they will become a formal grouping. Simon Holmes, of court, himself was uh, interviewed on the ABC on Saturday night 
and firmly rejected uh, the proposition that this will be a formal grouping. I mean, he's obviously in a position where uh, he wants to prosecute the argument that these are genuinely independent candidates. He was at pains to say uh, that these candidates emerged from grassroots campaigns, from uh, from community campaigns in an organic kind of way. I, I don't believe that for one moment to, uh, I, for myself, uh, but you know, others are free to uh, form their own opinion as to the true nature and political composition of this so-called independent group of candidates. We know that uh, obviously their main focus has been on climate change and their secondary focus has been on uh, on campaigning for an anti-corruption commission. Uh, we'll have to wait and see uh, whether there will be a federal integrity commission of some kind uh, formed by the Labor Party. Uh, and the question of Labor Party's climate change policy is is subject to another discussion on another day, but certainly historically the Labor Party um, has done nothing to convince anyone of conscience or, or, decent, uh, or decency um, that they are in any way committed in any meaningful sense, uh, in any meaningful sense, to averting uh, and eventually solving uh, the crisis of, of climate change. Moving now to the share of the votes for the far-right populist parties, the racist parties. There's a number of different ways that we can describe these parties. Uh, and we talked about uh, some of the, the semantics and terminology around these kinds of parties uh, with Dr. Tad Tietze on the show the other week. But uh, currently, the combined One Nation and United Australia Party vote is a sizable 9.1%. That's not as high as some commentators uh, predicted, but it's still a very concerning figure. Um, we can take that, broadly speaking, as a measure of, if you like, the level of hardcore racism and misogyny and homophobia and frankly uh, just just lunatic ideas including really uh, really marginal and out there conspiracy theories of, of all kinds whether it's anti-vax conspiracy theories the new world order uh, and, and and so on and so forth this is uh, to, to my mind a, a concerning figure uh, these are in many cases people who are really way out on the margins of society, extremely alienated, extremely angry. And of course, there's every reason, as we know, to be extremely angry about the state of the world. But unfortunately, these are people who have directed their anger uh, at the wrong targets, to say the least. Uh, they're directing their anger uh, towards uh, gay and trans people, towards uh, people of colour, uh, towards uh, women, and so on and so forth. So a very concerning uh, figure albeit uh, as not, not as high as some might have predicted. I myself uh, was uh, estimating that combined One Nation and United Australia Party vote uh, to end up at around 12%. In, in summary, uh, in terms of what the overall picture is looking at, looking like, uh, the ABC's um, AI systems and computer modelling uh, is currently projecting, uh, I, should, I should say not projecting, although in some cases projecting, and this is where it becomes complicated and, and a little murky in terms of what these, figures, what these figures really mean in terms of the difference between 
uh, definitive uh, calling of the result in an electorate uh, and the projection of what the result will be. But nevertheless, uh, the ABC uh, computer model currently has the Labor Party sitting at 72 seats uh, in the lower house, and of course they need 77 to govern. Uh, now you might think, well, why do they need 77 to govern, not 76 uh, in a 151-seat parliament? And that's because uh, they need that, that 77th is uh, the Speaker of the House. So you always have to, uh, you always have to take one member away from the government. Uh, sorry, excuse me, the, the party that is uh, in government, because uh, the convention is that the party of government has to provide one uh, member uh, to serve as, as the Speaker of the House, and the Speaker of the House does not get to cast a ballot except uh, in, uh, in, in votes where there's, there's a split vote and then the Speaker can, can cast the ballot. So 72 seats is the current figure that the Labor Party is sitting on. Now, curiously, News Corp uh, has been declaring a Labor outright majority since uh, since relatively early on Saturday night uh, and in fact they currently have uh, uh, they currently have the Labor Party at that magical figure of of 77 so it, it's it's intriguing obviously there's different uh, AI systems algorithms uh, computer modeling uh, that uh, that News Corp is using uh, in comparison to the ABC, uh, but and I don't know about you, uh, indie media listeners, but suffice it to say that I have uh, more trust uh, in the ABC's computer modelling, and specifically more trust uh, in in the extraordinary Anthony Green, uh, everybody's favourite sophologist, uh, than I do in the News Corp, uh, the News Corp figures. Now uh, I don't need to go into what the potential implications are of Labor forming a minority uh, government. And just to explain, um, some of this terminology is probably alien to some of our listeners. Uh, what minority government essentially means is that one of the parties does not have a majority of seats in its own right in the House of Representatives, which means that they have to then negotiate uh, either with the crossbench, the crossbench meaning uh, independent uh, uh, minor parties, uh, or uh, negotiate with the crossbench in order to to uh, establish a formal coalition, a formal government, which is then referred to as a minority government, or in extreme cases, there won't be a formal deal to establish a minority government, but instead a government, if you like, on a case-by-case -case basis or a bill-by-bill -bill basis, which I think it's extremely unlikely that we'd see that uh, uh, scenario, but in other polities in the Western world, one does see that where it's it's government by uh, bill by bill, uh, rather than a formal coalition as such. Now, it remains at this stage, as I record uh, this analysis, uh, early on Monday morning, Australian Western Standard Time, unclear. Uh, unclear what exactly what form this coalition government will take, but suffice it to say that we can say uh, with great certainty that there will be uh, that there will be a coalition government uh, with a Labor Party forming government. And indeed, uh, as you would know, as as this analysis goes to where Anthony Albanese has been formally sworn in as the 31st Prime Minister of Australia.
So my, my final uh, remarks in, in uh, summarising uh, my own views and analysis of this federal election vote, uh, I will go back to where we started, which is that the non-major party vote is the real story of this election. That's worth repeating. The non-major party vote is the real story of this election. And as I said at the beginning of this analysis, I think that trend is here to stay. And finally, what I would say is if you're somebody who is alienated by elections and you've every reason to be, uh, and perhaps you didn't vote and you were willing to cop the fine and there's all kinds of legitimate reasons uh, not to, to vote, uh, what I would say is that elections are still useful as, as an old mentor of mine in fact used to say, what elections really are, are a barometer of working class sentiment. They're a barometer of working class sentiment. I've always thought that is, that is the most useful way uh, to think about uh, a, a capitalist elections, uh, uh, elections in a, in a capitalist liberal democracy. They are on a, on a mass scale, on a national scale, uh, social surveys of the current picture of working class sentiment. Having said that, of course, and uh, this is sort of a pat uh, line that uh, regular indie media listeners uh, would, would expect me to say, uh, and it is of course true, um, that regardless of who has won this election, and in this case it is the Labor Party, kind of, as we discussed, because they've, they're not uh, entering government with anything like a strong mandate, but irrespective of that result, the true winners of this election are the true winners of every federal election in this country, and that is, of course, the state and capital. The state and capital have won yet again. Uh, no surprise in that result. And real change only comes from the building of social movements. This has been Alex Wisson reporting for Indie Media.